0: Want to know what executives and world-class companies like Disney really think about leadership and why they hire consultants and coaches like us? Welcome to the Enough Already Podcast. I'm your host, Betsy Jordan, and in every episode, we talk about finding the courage to turn your unique strengths, perspective, and experience into a profitable purpose-driven consulting or coaching business. Today, I'm chatting with one of my favorite executives of all time, Jim McPhee, recently retired chief operating officer and self-proclaimed experience steward for the Walt Disney Company and the author of the newly released book, Engage, Inspire, Lead. Since 1999, I've worked with Jim off and on, first as his organization development consultant at Disney and more recently as a sounding board when he retired from his 43-year career. So I invited Jim to join me on the show for a couple of reasons. So for the last few episodes, I've been talking to you about the importance of not just identifying your ideal client, but really getting into their hearts and minds so that you can position everything that you do to support them and to connect with them at that heart and mind level. But figuring out how executives think can be challenging for consultants and coaches, especially if we haven't been executives ourselves. So I thought, why not bring on some of my former clients so you can hear for yourself what they're really thinking, which will give you insight into what you need to do for your business. And then the other reason why I wanted to have Jim on the show is he's literally one of the best executives around. He is the real deal. He lives the values that we believe in so dearly. He believes in purpose. He believes in relationships. It's really hard to stay encouraged in this short-term profit-obsessed world that these type of unicorn executives exist, and they do. Jim does. And what Jim is so amazing at is he shares his philosophy and his belief into why he what he believes about leadership, but what created these leadership philosophies, what created these practices, which is so inspiring, because this is going to give us new ways that we could support our clients towards a similar end. So if you are ready for new ways of thinking about leadership in life and actionable inspiration to find and work with c-suite executives or executives on their way up to the c-suite like jim was you will not want to miss this episode this interview is that powerful welcome to the show jim so excited to have you here thank you so much for being here so i'm so excited to hear about your leadership journey what brought you from being the coo at disney into where you are now as an author and i want to hear all about it but before we get into everything can you just introduce yourself real quick about who you are and what you've been up to?
1: Of course. Thank you, Betsy. And I am equally thrilled to be here as well. You and I have a long, long history together. And I'm so proud of you and everything you're doing and the opportunity to spend time with you today is really cool. Great capstone to the week. Nice way to spend uh, a morning. So yeah, I just uh, retired uh, about 14 months ago from the Walt Disney Company, at uh, Walt Disney World. I had a 43-year career it was fabulous and had an opportunity to do a variety of things i spent a couple of years in california for the opening of the disney's california adventure in the 1999 to 2001 time frame but um, you know i reflect back on my journey with 43 years with for the company two-thirds of my life under the same you know banner of, of of walt disney world and it was just a remarkable run for me i started out in 1978 driving the ferry boats and launches out on Bay Lake and Seven Seas Lagoon when there was just the Magic Kingdom and a couple of hotels and a campground and was able to traverse through a great deal of growth, unbeknownst to me at the time, uh, as Walt Disney World expanded to what it is today. Um, My last few years, uh, was serving as the Chief Operating Officer, Senior Vice President of Operations for the the resort, which included the theme parks, the resort hotels, water park sports, and, and Disney Springs. And all of the support entities and elements that come with that—about 50,000 people—I uh, was honored to be uh, a part of, a part of leading. And um, you know, it was a great career. Obviously, for me, the capstone was you know dealing with the pandemic, like the rest of the world uh, has done. And I just realized, based on personal health challenges that I'm on the good side of, but want to stay on uh, and you know, the capstone of that kind of work in terms of the, you know, the tragedy of having to close down for a couple months, but then the thrill of, of getting back open. And I just decided that at the end of that period, you know, at the end of 43 years after that period, it was time for me to think about my next chapter. My uh, 19-year-old kids just finished up their first year at college, so I was able to launch them from, Marty and I, my wife, Marty and I, were able to launch them from, from high school into college uh, Marty has started her own very successful consulting business, and I wanted to be around more to support her. And after about eight months of of playing, I dabbled into the consulting world as well, where I focus on uh, on leadership, culture, and experience transformation. And it's been fun. I'm doing some consulting work with a local health organization, Advent Health, where they're focused on the patient experience transformation. And we all know that healthcare is in desperate need of. Of improving the experience for its consumers, so I'm looking forward to contributing to that and uh, hopefully applying some of the experiences that I've had, both on the product and on the culture side, to to make them successful. I do some occasional keynotes uh, on the same topic, and so I'm just enjoying life. It's a really great place to be, and uh, you know when you reflect on everything that uh, that your life and your career has brought forth with you, as you know, you helped me greatly. You know, you start to think about a higher purpose and a higher, higher sense of responsibility and maybe a give back, you know, to the organizations and the world. And I'm really focused in on simply just filling my bucket up with, you know, sharing knowledge, sharing experiences, good, bad, and ugly, and helping people, you know, traverse through their own journey. Uh, I like to look for myself 20 years ago and say, geez, if I could have found somebody like me 20 years ago, who could have shared their stories, that's kind of my, my motive, you know. Mm -hmm make life easier for those who are following behind us.
0: So it's interesting. There's so many things to unpack and what you talked about here. Cause I, I love the, I love the, the, the beauty and the simplicity of taking your personal experience and your professional experience and combining it together into what you're doing now through the consulting, through the mentoring. Um, I want to go back in time and come back uh, up to this is you started off driving the ferry boats over at magic kingdom but you did find yourself in leadership. How did you, what was like your first leadership role like? And then when did you, like what what appealed to you about leadership? I want to just kind of unpack what it's like to be a leader in general from your standpoint.
1: Sure. You know, unbeknownst to me at the time when I joined Disney in 1978, I, I probably didn't realize what kind of explosive growth was about to happen with the opening of Epcot and additional hotels and resorts. And then obviously, you know, Disney MGM Studios, 1989, Disney's Animal Kingdom, 1998. The real entry point for me into leadership actually started uh, quickly after I became a member, a cast member at Disney in the watercraft department. And I was very fortunate because it was a wonderful place to enter into this this place called Disney, Walt Disney World, because it was a real sense of community. There were people who were there for part-time work, while they're pursuing their education or something like that, teachers who are working on the weekends. I didn't realize it, but I entered in as what ended up being a lifer, you know, where I would spend over four decades there. But um, in that time in 1978, um, shortly after joining, uh, Epcot was announced. And so I spent a couple years in watercraft and was able to grow within the operating hourly ranks to a trainer position and a lead position. A uh, trainer being obviously someone who teaches others how to drive boats in that case, and then uh, a lead and a training lead position was kind of the next rung in the ladder. Uh, a lead is like a foreman on a crew who is responsible for you know um, cycle times and staffing assortment and things of that nature. And um, as I progressed through that level, you know one of the things I love about Disney is you work for the same company and you could have a million different jobs. I think I counted at one point. 28 different jobs over my 43 years and it's just so cool because i got to do so many great things that were all for the same company i didn't have to change organizations to build my you know base of experience i was able to kind of stay within the organization and move and after my first two years of watercraft i was moved into the theme park into the magic kingdom park and i was assigned the position as a status lead for what was called Main Street Adventureland, and, and Main Street, like watercraft, Main Street was where the cool people worked. Mm. And uh, I'm not suggesting that I was cool and was able to get you in. You were cool. Knew
0: Everybody knew you was cool. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it was really, really fun because, you know, our theme parks have multiple lines of business: food and beverage, merchandise, entertainment, park operations/slash attractions. And I grew up really in the park operations/slash attractions area, and it's kind of more of a generalist role. You're outside of the bricks and mortar of a food and beverage location or a merchandise location. And you start to see things differently and you see landscapes differently and you see the experience holistically. The real exciting point of growth for me was when Epcot was announced, Epcot Center at the time. And no one really knew what an Epcot was. Everybody knew what a Magic Kingdom was. We had one at Disneyland since 1955 and we opened up Walt Disney World in 1971. But Epcot was this thing that actually Walt Disney talked about months before he passed away in the fall of 1966, he actually talked about it as the Florida expansion. And he really painted a picture of this place called Epcot Center, experimental prototype community of tomorrow, where industries and commerce would come together from around the world and be showcased in future world. And then where communities would come together from around the world, literally, with the opening of 10, soon to become 11 different countries, now, if you think back into that time frame, 1982, there was no iPhone, no Google, no hardly computers uh, in place. So the chance to see cultures represented by actual cast members from those cultures come to life and World Showcase was phenomenal. But my uh, my honor, uh, my first real honor was to serve as the opening lead for the Epcot Center Preview Center. And we opened up this area in about 1980. And it was two years before Epcot had been announced. Of course, Epcot had been announced, but it was two years before Epcot opened. And we were able to take the Walt Disney story and convert it into an Epcot center preview center. And that was so cool because I really didn't know anything about Walt Disney Imagineering or the creative process at all. But I got to learn with with other members of about 30 or 40 size team. We got to learn everything about the creative conceit, the ultimate intent of what Epcot was to be, the connection to Walt and his vision. And I didn't realize that I'm, I'm actually not allowed to have favorite parks, I'm told, because I was in charge of all four of them at one point. But Epcot will always have a very, very special place because it was last it was Walt's last stated dream. So I spent about a month doing that. Uh, I was able to see it get open, but then I was promoted as the property was be- prepare, preparing for growth with Epcot openings. There were a lot of temporary uh, supervisory positions put in place. And so I found myself back in transportation and spent a couple years in the area of parking, parking operations to do, uh, to lead the parking efforts for the Magic Kingdom, the transportation efforts for the Magic Kingdom, but also to add the scale of Epcot onto that responsibility. Now, I would tell you that if we were to open up a fifth gate right now, if Walt Disney World was to open up a fifth gate, it's a lot different opening up number five than it is number two. Number two is actually doubling the size of your footprint. So everything becomes now a multiplier. And I didn't know it at the time, but I was learning a lot about standardization, a lot about consistency, a lot about aligning organizations to be like in nature, like in philosophy, because you didn't want to have wild, wild west with a second park opening up completely on its own, a Magic Kingdom over here completely on its own. It was the first, Endeavor into you know shared learning, shared resources, and whatnot. And Epcot was hugely successful. I think its highest level of attendance was probably in those first couple of years. And uh, it, it opened up uh, with extraordinary success to over 14 million in attendance uh, during the first year. So it was really, really fun uh, to be there for opening day. Although I was outside the turnstiles in the parking area, shortly thereafter, I found myself moving to Epcot as an assistant supervisor in World Showcase. And that was so fun. You know, you walk into the break rooms of China and you smell the uh, ethnic cuisine of, of the actual cast members from China eating their, their food that they've cooked at home and brought in, or you go to the China restaurant or, you know, any of the one of the 10 countries. It was just so authentic and so so neat. And it's a beautiful park, you know, to be out and about and, uh, you know, you take a couple laps around World Showcase and you're up to, up to five miles, you know, in terms of of walking in one day, but it was a great starting point and a great entree into there. Of course, I was at Epcot uh, from about 82 to 84, and that was when we had massive organizational change with uh, Card Walker and Don Tatum, legacy leaders, iconic leaders from the Walt Disney heritage had departed, and Michael Eisner and Frank Wells came in with a whole different level of energy largely focused around synergy and bringing the company together in very new and unique ways, whether it's marketing events or parades or TV shows, you know, it really started to become this, this, this effort that knocked down a lot of uh, unintended silos and walls between different organizations of the company to bring it together and really showcase what we do from a film perspective, what we do from a theme park perspective and blur the lines organizationally And get everybody to work a lot more strongly together. It's a lot of fun.
0: It's so interesting because I know you so well, and I could hear the seeds of your leadership philosophy (laughs) in this story. So I hear, you know, one thing for you that you've always talked about you know, it's just always having that bigger picture perspective yeah. and having the biggest point of view and really like manifesting a vision of some kind, either manifesting Walt's vision around what he wanted or other kind of visions, like it's manifesting that. And it's always about aligning the people is another part of what you, you talked about. So it's interesting that your philosophy, it seems to have started at that early age. And it seems from your standpoint as a as a leader, what, what fueled your success is just taking the very next step, like not being worried. It's like, this is my next step. This is the next step after that. And you just took whatever the opportunities were to next step, next step, next step. And so it seems like leadership was just the next step for you.
1: Yeah, I think that's really accurate. And it's, 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 it's fun right now to kind of reflect on all of that, because honestly, I don't believe I did that with the strategic intent of always being connected to and a part of, Growth, you know, across the property. I was very blessed to work with a lot of dynamic leaders, you know, people who were innovative game changers at the time uh, between, you know, people like Greg Emmer who was a iconic, you know, um, we, I refer to him as a silverback uh, gorilla in terms of leadership. Cause he had obviously been in Disneyland or Walt Disney world. And he was always progressive working at Disney's Hollywood studios, Disney MGM studios. At the time, that was the first part that really went head to head with external competition. We opened day and date, same time around Universal Studios opening, and Bruce Laval and Bob Lamb were the vice president and general manager, respectively, of those areas, and both were brilliant leaders in their own way and in their own right. What I realized in hindsight as I look back is that I worked for people who really cared about me and who invested in me to not just do the day in, day out job responsibilities, but kind of get into my heart and my mind about what I'm about, what I wanna do, how I wanna grow with the company. And I didn't know it at the time, but it really was a seed plant for me about the importance of, of leadership. And, and as you know, you helped me immensely. You know, We kind of migrated this notion of leadership matters, which I strongly believe in. And I'll share something about that in a minute to, to relationships matter. I get my energy from people. I get my energy from conversations like this and people like you. Um, And I really live to be engaging with others um, because I have found through personal journeys and things of that nature that life is fleeting. Life is fragile. I've seen death uh, personally uh, between uh, unexpected losses of family members. And I've come to realize that truly the time on this planet is short. And I also have come to realize that In order to do what we did at Disney, and I think what Disney does today, we ask a lot of people. We ask a lot of their hearts, a lot, a lot of their minds, to be able to go above and beyond in everything that they do. And it sounds so basic and so trite, but the reality is, the reason they do it is because they're invested in it, and and leaders invest in them. So my point is, like I did, I wanted to do more. I wanted to do more because, a, it was fun to do new and exciting things, but b. You know, we were appreciated for that. We were encouraged to, you know, stay involved and stay connected. I spent a lot of time now talking about these two words called experience and transformation. And one of the things that I really have learned over the last decade of my career is that it's so very, very important for us to stay focused on delivering the base experiences. And they're they are they're, they're hard to do. You know, when you've got tens of millions of people coming in each and every year to for theme parks and staying in our resorts, there's a lot to bring forward to from an experience standpoint. And, and we at Disney always focus on storytelling, right? Storytelling from evergreen brands, those movies and animation features and things of that nature. We bring them to life through experiences. So this idea of experience and transformation is really important. I say experience, you gotta deliver it, but you also have to improve it. I love the definition of experience. It's from businessdictionary.com. And it is about the way people feel during various courses of conducting business with your business or your organization. And the word feels is really important. It's not how many things people do, it's how they feel when they're doing it. And then the same source, businessdictionary.com, definition of transformation, is a profound or radical change of an organization, its people, its culture, and its processes to an entirely different level of effectiveness. So I, I came to realize that as a leader, I have a huge, huge privilege to be able to lead Disney experiences, lead Disney, Disney cast members. But with that privilege comes great responsibility. And part mm-hmm. of my responsibility as a leader is to enable people to be able to do what they're charged to do each and every day, but to also pick my head up our heads up and look forward to what can we make better? How can we transform the experience for our cast members who are delivering it? and for our guests who are consuming it. And so I found over the majority of my career, particularly the latter half, uh, that I was very involved in transformative efforts, whether it's, you know, in in our processes or in our product or in our business rules or in our experiences, transforming them and always trying to stay ahead of the consumer expectations. Hard to do, but important to do. And uh, I think it's a unique person who can do all that. Um, and I was blessed to have been taught and led by people who were really great at it and take it, my, take it in on my own and kind of shape it myself and then carry it forward for, you know, the generations that follow us.
0: This is like super fun for me. Cause it's so interesting because so you and I met, let's go back to 1999. So we met when we, I was yeah. an OD consultant at animal kingdom. And you were the GM of what, Area 3, I think is what we called it, one of the air, the lands. Yeah. I think that, that was like a major transformation point in your executive journeys. So I want to get to that one. But I want to point out one thing that's so interesting, and I think what makes you a very unique leader, is I remember you talking about similar concepts in a very different way at the different junctures. So you and I worked together, first one in that animal kingdom role, then we worked together when you were in charge of the park operations at the line of business level, we worked together then. And then we worked on major transformation projects together. And then we worked personally when you were leaving. And it's interesting to hear your philosophies. Like what makes you different is, it's not that you just jump in and get the work done. But it seems like you're always been reflective on how am i getting the work done how are we getting these results so back when we were at animal kingdom when we were walking around and you were talking about like all right here's how to think about it and you talked about some of the basic leadership stuff then when we you moved to the line of business rick your rick model right. relationship influence no, credibility and knowledge became like the model at, that you were kind of playing around with there and then now to where you talk about it is experience and transformation like it's taking these concepts and just developing them it's not like you just came up with these philosophies you know in the past you know decade they they've been germinating or at least yeah. i remember them in the seed form do you feel like a big part of what makes a leader what makes a really great leader or a leader versus just a manager or what makes leadership unique is having the ability to f- reflect on how are we getting the results? How are we partnering? How are we what are our processes? It seems like a lot of leaders don't do that. They just want to just get in, get get stuff done, 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 done. But you've always been that mindful person taking a step back. And I don't know if that was where you were because I remember you in your story that there was something that was significant that transformed your understanding of your role as an executive and and making that your career, is the focus is I'm an executive leader versus whatever your line of business was or whatever your technical knowledge was. Is there anything that you could say was a catalyst that, that made like, okay, this is what I want to do clear. Is there a story in there that put you on this path of being really mindful and, and uh, a student of executive leadership?
1: That's a great question and it's a, it's a deep one too. Um, you know I, as I think about my early years building up to maybe the midpoint of my career, I was always connected to something new, but at the same time responsible for delivering the base, you know the day, day in and day out base, base responsibility. I, I have a sense of curiosity and a sense of optimism that I think um, you know I, I, I think has really benefited me. To be able to kind of see the forest through the trees in terms of what we have to do day in and day out, and as I was, you know, blessed to be assigned to, you know, being connected to new openings between Epcot, we just talked about Disney's Hollywood Studios, Disney MGM Studios at the time. I gave I gave a nod to that, you know. I was in transportation again at the time, you know, for that opening. Um, Gosh, I can't think of one specific point, but what I really enjoyed doing was having fun. Okay. And so if you look up the definition of work, there's nothing sexy about the definition of work. It is work. But (laughs) if you think about work and relationship to your life, I look at work as one third of my life when I was working and I, you know, it never works out this way, but you sleep one third of your life, you play one third of your life and you work one third of your life. It's usually you work half your life and the other ones get compromised, but you know, I, to me it's more than a job it's more than, than work it's an opportunity to connect with people and really understand through true authentic engagement what they're all about understanding what can move people to do the impossible as walt said it's kind of fun to do the impossible but then you know getting them connected and involved in it now as you know and as the world knows management styles have evolved over time. You know, there was the management by objective, which is the my way or the highway kind of leadership mode. Then there's the management by inclusion, which obviously should always be uh, in place and, and, and engaged. But I found myself just greatly intrigued by what could be done and what could happen. I talked a lot about heritage and tradition. You mentioned a little bit about, you know, that experience that we get, especially with a company like Disney, soon to be 100 years old, here in Walt Disney World, just celebrating its fiftieth 50th, fiftieth uh, 50th anniversary, heritage and tradition is really important, especially when your founder is Walt Disney. But heritage and tradition can be a liability too, depending mm-hmm. upon how you think about it and how you process it. I've developed, and it's in my book: Engage, Lead, Inspire. Engage, Inspire, and Lead, which just uh, released a couple of days ago, and I talk about a series of leadership beliefs. That I think are really important and one of the first ones is honor your heritage and tradition and allow it to be the wind in your sails as you know I love water and I love boats and I love being around that I do think it's important to look back and reflect on what's gotten you here and generally it's your heritage and tradition for us our focus on safety courtesy show and, and efficiency and now inclusion
0: forward to the basics
1: forward to the basics you remember yes that? yeah uh, that's another remind one to come back to that because I want to talk about that in a minute but okay. You know, there's always a way to make things better. Obviously, you have to have the time and the capacity to be able to do that. I think there's a unicorn that exists someplace that does it perfectly, where they deliver the basic experiences and they're driving it moving forward. It's not an easy task. I'm not at all suggesting that people sit around eating bonbons and have time on their hand to be thinking about the future. Depending upon what level you're at, what area you're in, just getting the daily stuff done is enough of a grind in and of itself. But at some point, and I think one of my biggest learnings was know your altitude, know your role, know your responsibility and know your purpose and know your swim lane, what altitude to fly at, that allows the people that work for you to prosper as well and not to compress people, uh, you know, and be a fifth wheel on a well-oiled machine or a well-oiled bus or, or whatever uh, the case may be. But I just found this sense of curiosity and the sense of you know, wanting to make change Uh, To be kind of at the forefront of it, Animal Kingdom. You mentioned briefly. You know, you and I did connect right uh, shortly after opening. I guess it would have been, and you know that was a very provocative organizational structure. And we created that just a couple of us when we were uh, designing the organizational structure, And, and and we were ahead of our time on that. And that's it's kind of funny. And I don't say this in a braggadocious way, but sometimes I found myself a little bit ahead of others in thought, and it may not have stuck in the moment. But nine times out of 10, five years later, it was real. And the structure was real. We created a very different structure that moved off of the traditional line of business verticals of food and beverage and merchandise and park operations and entertainment vertically within a profit center matrixed by what we call line of business. Now it's called development optimization and standardization. We created a generalist structure to where Historically, my role would have been responsible for attractions. Uh, someone else's would have been responsible for food and beverage. Well, we created this generalist structure, which was we called it the proprietor model. And we wanted to replicate somewhat of a hotel structure where, as a general manager of a hotel, I'm responsible for everything. And so I ended opened up with this proprietor structure, generalist in nature. So I was the general manager of Africa and Asia. The food and beverage, the merchandise, the attractions, and the entertainment in those whole areas. And it was the coolest structure in the world. Shortly after opening, as you know, I went to California and it got unbundled. I think there was a more of a move toward consistency.
0: Guilty? Between- I was a part of that.
1: <laughs> you did that. You- no. no,
0: it's because the rest of the organization had an issue with it because it could Animal Kingdom couldn't partner. And that was one right. of my projects. Sorry. Well, you know what's
1: funny? Um, this is an example of what I talked about, so in roughly two thousand and sixteen, we went back to the proprietor structure now, by this time, I'm responsible for all of the operations at the uh, theme parks, and I think I had become just become c o o and we restructured our organization back to that model and um and Disneyland and is still in that model today the, the proprietor, the generalist role. We restructured it. We ran it that way for a couple of years. It was phenomenal. Yeah, it was hard to work with with partners, but partners need to sometimes remember they support the delivery of the experience. And um, you know, one of the one of my biggest regrets, uh, and I didn't write about this, and I wish I did, uh, was that we un- we had to unbundle that two years later, and it was a mistake, and I should have followed on the sword for it, but I didn't. I, uh, I caved uh, uh, because we needed, you know, it's a long story, but we had we had originally intended to go down an executive headcount by creating these generalist organizational structures, giving people direct ownership of everything under their feet, you know, that they're responsible for. There was a suggestion that we take a layer out. I was reticent to do that. I should have not done that and should have left it where it was. So we ended up taking a layer out, had to add more executives than we had intended. And long story short, we unwrapped that, uh, unfolded that, I guess, for lack of a better way in the 2018 timeframe. I regret that. I regret allowing that to happen and not being more thoughtful about what it looks like. Because I do believe, as you said, a generalist mindset is one that can stand up above the fray and think holistically from an end-to-end perspective. And to me, we always say, guests don't care about our old charts. That's Meg's famous, Meg Crofton's famous quote. They just want a seamless end-to-end experience. And so what we did in the 2008 to 2014 timeframe with the My Magic Plus effort and the Next Generation Experience project, that really opened my eyes to the critical need to be thinking holistically from a consumer perspective on the end-to-end journey. But let me say something before I forget it, Betsy, and you are a perfect, perfect poster person for this. I have a, a finite amount of intelligence and intellectual capacity. And I found that the catalyst for me to be able to do what I did was not what was in here, but what my head was and what, my, what I was surrounded by. People like you who are brilliant at organizational development, brilliant at pushing the envelope brilliant at thinking differently and i always believe and i believe to this day that a leader must surround themselves themselves with diverse thinking creative thinking contrarian points of view and you've got to create the capacity for you yourself and your key partners i called them my circle of influence actually i called it my inner circle but then i realized i better not be that because no one wants to be in the outer circle and everybody wants right. to be in the inner circle but it was people like you, you know, with a strong external perspective, courage you know, to think differently, outside experiences you know, that, 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 that bring to bear. I, I think of HROD as critical partners. I think of an integration engine within an organization as being critical to be able to go get things done. I think of a strong admin person with Sherry, who I was blessed with for 15 years. But I look at those people as a circle of influence people that I would intentionally spend time with no agenda to say, what do we need to do here? We got problems in our guest experience scores. What is at the root cause of all this? And so, uh, the power of one is one. The power of five is five. And you know, when you get bright people together, and you create, I believe, an environment where you can have discussion, debate, argue, poke at, and push and prod, and embrace that for what it is, which is gold. You know, because something is always good is going to come out of that. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I have to make decisions based on all of those inputs. And if I'm making a decision as a, le- as a leader in isolation, it's the worst decision I could ever possibly make. If I make decisions that are rich with various points of view and contrarian thinking, then I'm going to be better for that. The organization's going to be better for that. So I, inclusion in that sense, you know, inclusion is a big word these days, diversity and inclusion. But inclusion in the sense of diverse thinking is hugely important for organizations and for businesses.
0: So it's interesting. So a lot of times when people think that an executive is hiring a consultant, they think it's like, well, you're hiring me for my best practices, or you're hiring me because I have XYZ methodology. But that doesn't sound at all like what you're looking for. You're looking for someone who can, you can take your ideas and, and play around with your ideas, test your ideas, somebody with courage and somebody who could challenge you to think differently about the ideas. So it's really more of a thinking partnership. Than it is around like I have this special methodology. Do you did you care if I have a five step methodology in X, Y, and Z or my credentials or is it just my personality of I'm going? You know, if you know when you and I are going to have a conversation, it's going to be a rich, diverse back and forth, like we're playing pickleball. Like you like pickleball, we're going to be taking the idea and I I assume pickleball's like why doesn't it you throw it against the wall like with the big racket?
1: Well, it's like tennis. It's like a baby game, baby game of tennis. It's like a a big game of ping pong and a baby game of tennis. So we're going back and forth, right?
0: Yeah, that's what you like. The idea you're all about. So as a visionary leader, you're all about the idea. And so as a visionary leader, the idea is the little pickleball and it's us playing the game with the pickleball. And that that's going to be what matters is like, you know, you're going to play your best game because you have a worthy opponent, if you will. You could push it before it goes out to market or before you go forward and implement it, you stretch the idea enough. Seems like that's the big reason why you would hire someone.
1: Yes, that's exactly right. In fact, I don't know if it's a, a, a exactly applicable example, but I remember when I first took on the responsibility for the four theme parks, I remember sitting down with the group of general managers at Disney's Hollywood Studios and the leadership team there. And it was kind of, as you as you know, I think out loud sometimes, which is, Frustrating for people, uh, but you get what you get, and you don't mind a bit. Uh, but I, I remember just this thought went into my head. I'm going like, you know what? They're asking me, what do I think we need to work on collectively as an organization? And I said, to be an organization that is like-minded but different, that is driving the business in successful ways, and in order to do that, you have to think bigger than what you're than we're thinking right now and i remember saying to everybody pull out your business card i'm going to pull my business card out you guys pull your business cards out and i want you to read them to me and i went first and my business card at the time was senior vice president of walt disney world theme park operations and went around the room and there was a general manager of food and beverage for disney hollywood studios a general manager for attractions for disney's hollywood studios a general manager for merchandise and entertainment for Disney's Hollywood Studios. I said, you know, I'm gonna submit to you all that our business cards are completely wrong. They tell us what our subject matter expertise is, perhaps the industry that we grew up in and the experience that we have, but our business cards should actually say experienced stewards. Because if you think about it, you know, this notion of connecting the dots across various business units and making it opaque, maybe even invisible, in terms of organizational structure, is what makes end-to-end experiences great. And that resonated with them. And they went, whoa, I didn't even think about it that way. And I said, I'm not telling you that your subject matter expertise is not important. It's critically important. It's what's gotten you to the table. But what's going to get you to the next level is to, yeah, leverage that experience that you have, but then springboard off of that and think bigger on a broader connectivity basis with the whole experience and you know, kind of work it through that It didn't take, it took me a long time, probably two thirds of my career, before I realized clearly that every experience that I had was a brick and a foundation to give me tangible, credible operating knowledge and operating experience. It's not that I would always tap into, yeah, this is what we did when we parked cars in the four parking lots. It was really about building experiences and and experience base. So you are a perfect example. You have a lot that you've done over your career that serves as a foundation to get you to what you're doing right right now. You're not doing much of those things, but you're doing the aggregation and the energy of what those things come to bear. And I think I, that to me is like the classic definition of a generalist leader: someone who has a broad base of experience can tap into it if they need to, but rather can connect it all together at a higher level with a higher purpose.
0: So what you're really labeling is the generalist leader, somebody who could see things bigger and see all the pieces come together. That's your unique superpower. Is it, and this goes back to your whole Epcot experience is learning how to be the generalist leader and bringing all of the partners and making sure that you have all of your partners and sort of like your consigliers around you helping you figure that out. That's your, that's your superpower. That's your unique leadership gift. Is that gift transferable? Like when you think about developing the generalist leader who has that big perspective, is your book give somebody the recipe on how they too, who may not have your unique wiring, your unique optimism, your unique vision, can can somebody develop in that way? And, and how is your book going to help somebody?
1: I think the answer is yes, uh, of course, to all of the above. I think it, it will be very helpful. You know, um, one of the things that I was blessed with at the end of my career uh, was the opportunity to have a permanent place on Main Street USA with a window on Main Street that I share with three colleagues that you know very well, Phil Holmes and Duane Rivers and and, uh, Trevor Larson. And I have a, I have a, uh, if I may do a little show and tell. I have it. Uh, this is a replica of what's located on Ray, Main Street USA, right next to Meg Crofton's window, which is probably one of the best treats in the world. And this is about talent education and training, inspiring success for a new century. Phil's in for operational excellence. Trevor is in for engineering services, and I'm in for talent development. And Duane is in for international assignments. And I share that with you because. A it's an incredible honor, uh, that I never honestly anticipated. <laughs> in fact, I had a I had a prepared speech uh, for if someone asked me a window, if I asked me if I got a window on Main Street, what if I didn't get a window on Main Street, what would I say? Because I really didn't think I was a completely surprised by it because those a rarities and obviously the company's, you know, so much bigger now. But my point in sharing that is that I do believe that uh, my beliefs are teachable. I think they are absolutely transferable. One of the things that I'm most proud of is having developed leaders who are now sitting really across all four of our theme parks and in even higher levels of the organization who have succeeded because they taught me, you know, what their great skills were and, and traits were. And I think I taught and shared with them what their great s- skills and traits were. I the the reason I wrote a book, I when I retired, I didn't say, okay, I'm retired now, I'm going to go write a book. I didn't even think about it, to be honest. Um, You know, you were helping me a lot during my transition out of Disney and into what I wanted to, you know, do in the world, you know, in this next chapter. Uh, Several people had said, you ought to write a book, you ought to write a book. And I said, I'd never write a book. You know, I would never do that. But then I got to thinking about it and it kind of connects the dots on a couple of things. One is, you know, I would like to, I wish I could have found me 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. and asked me, you know, what did you learn, what would you differently, and, and how, how would you do it, number one, and, and, and number two, for legacy reasons, and more way more than work legacy reasons, but for family reasons. As you know, my, my health journey has been pretty, uh, pretty, uh, pretty, pretty bumpy. I'm on the good side of it all, but Marty was really the smart one. She said, you know, if you have it in you and you want to do it, then you should do it. What a perfect legacy to leave for your children, And so didn't write a book for money, didn't write a book for, you know, more speaking engagements, although I'm available, but, um, (laughs) you know, but wrote it for preservation purposes, legacy preservation purposes, I guess. It's called Engage, Inspire, and Lead. Why those words? Because they, to me, are the most important thing that great leaders did for me. They engaged me, they inspired me, and they led me and what I think I was able to do for a lot of leaders that remain you know, well after, after I left. And so I go through you know, essentially um, you know, uh, my thoughts on why am I writing a book, my, how I grew up, and how hospitality as an industry was important to me in my high school years and whatnot, and early years in college. And then I talk about uh, various levels of experiences across the four decades with which I was Disney, and then I come out of that and kind of unpack these leadership principles and beliefs that I talk about and really kind of developed probably in the last five years of my career because I realized that I owe it to my team and I owe it to the organization to share what's in my head and in my heart about what great leadership represents. So leadership principles is really centered around you know these buckets of, I think, thoughts that a leader has to have, especially as you're moving to the executive level. I think it's helpful for anybody on any level to be able to read. But when I talk about leadership principles, I'm talking about things like um, mastery and command and systems and critical thinking and how to unpack that. You have to realize, as I mentioned earlier, you may be in one job now, but you're connected to a bigger system you have other parks that have the same structure that are doing the same thing and so you need to know if you make an dial adjustment on this dial over here it's going to have an effect throughout the entire ecosystem and you need to be cognizant that if you change something over here and there's another park over here with the same thing that hasn't changed then it's inconsistent and our guests expect continuity you know from their from their visits but i believe that leadership principles are centered around and uh, centered around um, Mastery and command, systems and critical thinking, effective communication, vulnerability, trust, and humility. So I talk about those as important components of a leader to be able to take on more responsibility and, more importantly, engage and inspire large organizations to follow them wherever they want to go. My beliefs are a little bit different. I have about eight different beliefs that I talk about. Uh, I mentioned one earlier. It is obviously thinking about heritage and tradition. I also believe in clarity, unity, and agility. It's a huge principle from a book called Strategic Speed. I also talk about strengthening your core. And by that, I mean delivering your base experience every day. I'm working with some people right now who are not at the level that they wanna be. And in order to transform an organization, you've gotta get your core fixed and it's gotta be fully optimized in order to transform. You can't go from your core base to transformation without optimizing every, everything within. So strengthening your core is key. Leading with a transformational mindset. We've talked a lot about that. You know, you're, you're the best in the business. I think Disney's the best in the business until they start to think they're the best in the business. We mm-hmm. have to all believe that we can be better. We have to all believe that we can improve. And so this idea of leading with a transformative mindset, waking up every day and saying, I, I know this could be better thinking about it on your way in and getting there, and yes, making sure it's running perfectly day in and day out, but forward thinking in terms of how to how to think about that. I talk a lot about the balance of art and science. You know the world is largely focused on data. Um, I think that data is hugely and extremely important, but it's the translation of that data that is the art. and how I remember talking to one of the vice presidents in one of our theme parks shortly before I was uh, ready to take off for retirement and they were having trouble justifying something because the data wasn't telling the story. And I said, well, what is the data telling you? And she told me her interpretation of it. I said, well, that's data. What you're describing, what you wanna do with it is art. You're a painter, so paint with the data. You know, Make it what you want it to be and make it that experience. If it fails, that's okay. You just won't do it again. But if it works, you're, you're making your decision on data and intuition, which in my opinion is, is art. I talk a lot about presence, probably the biggest challenge every one of us has as a parent, a husband, a wife, spouse, whatever, and how it's important to be in the moment and how, how hard it is in this day and age to be able to do this. And then one of my favorite parables is about feeding the good wolf. And I talk a lot about that because I believe that from my own health journeys and other experiences that we create energy. You know, and that energy can be positive, optimistic, realistically optimistic, uh, or it can be negative. And I choose, to, you know, with my cancer journey, I choose to be a warrior, not a victim. In life, I choose to feed the good wolf, not the bad wolf. It's a wonderful parable, I won't bore you with it, but uh, it's a great story about a young Indian uh, uh, brave who was talking to their great-grandfather, the, the chief, and he says, "There's a war inside me, Papa. There's always, always this good and this bad, you know, that's working against each other." And the elderly statesman said, "You know, grandson, there is there are two wolves inside you, and they're always fighting with one each, one, one another. One is optimistic, positive, outgoing, high energy, and the other one is, you know, critical and negative." And the and the young child said to the great-grandfather which one wins the battle and the the great-grandfather said the one you feed so I like this feed the good wolf idea because to me life is what we make it and life is what we believe in and how we do it and how we live it and I think this notion of you know you gotta you gotta think that it's going to get better you gotta think it's going to be better you can't will it to be bad so anyway off on a tangent there but so those were some of the ingredients in the back end of the book and ironically I created these principles and beliefs well before the idea of engage inspire and lead and so actually each one of them fit perfectly uh, under either engage or inspire or lead so i unpack those beliefs and principles in those categories for people to be able to think about their journey and how they're going to lead it and live it you know as they travel through it it's, it's been really fun because like you know with the work that we've done together not everything comes together but this came together you know it was really Fun to see how how it all tied. Of course, the reader will be the judge. It's available on ebook now uh, for a dollar ninety nine. Such a deal! And uh, paperback comes out on the twenty eighth of June, and uh, hardcover in early July.
0: Is there a link, or just they go on Amazon?
1: Uh, I can forward a link to you if you go on Amazon and go into search bar and type in engage, inspire, and lead. It will pop right up. It's you know, it's funny. I, I'm laughing because folks who helped me with the book are sending. It's rated number one in like four different categories in the first three days. It's a bestseller, but I have a feeling ninety nine makes a big difference. But, no, uh,
0: <laughs> I think, I think what makes your book different. And I think what makes your message different, because it's not like there's, there's a million leadership books out there, but I think what you're creating is a a leadership competency framework for the transformational leadership generalist, executive generalist, and somebody who is going to see the big picture. And I think that that's what's an interesting thing throughout our whole conversation from the beginning of your career to where you are now. It's really developing the generalist executive who has that bigger perspective. So it sounds like there's a little bit of a competency model around that. It seems like there's like beliefs and philosophies, values that are also a part of it. And then it also seems like there's like actionable practices, things that you can go off and do. And from that, if that's accurate, it sounds like there's a lot of benefits for emerging leaders like yourself, but also someone who is a consultant who might need like a fresh way of helping their consultant or coach who needs a fresh way of helping their clients with the same old, same old. Like if they're dealing with organizations that have leaders who are stuck in the, this is the way we've always done it or stuck on their silos they could just hand them your book and say here's what you need to do is that accurate in terms of another use
1: i think so very much each one of these sections by the way has key takeaways that i think are easily transferable to any individual in any role but you said it well it's this generalist mindset and i want to be really really clear that to say that you have to be uh you have to have a specialist mindset and a generalist mindset so you have to be a little bit schizophrenic, if you will, to be able to not leave what's happening day in and day out and abandon it, but to be able to balance the day-to-day with the longer-term view and the longer-term vision. I think, as you well know, having a clearly, I like clarity and unity, clarity, unity, and agility as a principle in a big way. Because if you were to think about things that went suboptimally in any organizational rollout, launch, or something of that nature, Nine times out of 10, if it was suboptimal, it's because there was a lack of clarity on the front end. And at the same time, one of the most important beliefs that I have is as leaders, you got to have bravery before perfection. If you're going to sit around and wait for everything to be perfect, you're going to be in the last place. Yeah. Uh, I like this idea of defining your destination and going. And being nimble and agile along the way i love mountain climbing analogies you know oftentimes you can't see the top of the mountain where you're going or you can't see the base camp that you're tra- traveling to but you know you better get going if you're going to get there and get there on time and just be nimble and ad- agile along the way the path may take you differently that's okay as long as you're maintaining forward momentum then i think you are moving and companies the other thing is that this workplace today you know is better than i probably that the employees own what it is they want to do and what it is that they want to contribute to. So this idea of coming in with you know just checklists and just um, you know task orientation to go just do things the what is is critical, or I should say, standing alone, it, it's going to fail. But it is important. I love Simon Sinek's Golden Circle. I'm a big fan of the of the why, the how, and the what and how we do that. And I believe from a purpose standpoint, you know, Disney's purpose is to create magical memories that last a lifetime for guests uh, of all generations. And I often think about that purpose. It's like, really, we need to remember why we're here and everything that we're doing is contributing to a bigger experience. And I think getting people to think above that and realizing that their impact could be far bigger than what they do. Work isn't about nine to five or you know, 10 to six or whatever, work is about life in my opinion and how they all weave together. You know, I, I've talked, I think I've shared with you before that I, I believe in my life, I have four circles that I look at, faith, family, work, and social. And that is my life. And they're all in some state. And if one of them's out of state in, in disarray, it's probably okay. I can figure out how to focus on that one and fix it. If two of them are out of, out of control, then I'm kind of like, uh-oh, you know, if three of them are out of control, it's broken arrow. So I like to think about work as a part of my life, not as a task or a necessary evil, easier said than done, because um, I know people work paycheck to paycheck and, and whatnot, but there's a higher purpose there, and it's what you can give as well as receive, in my opinion, especially as a leader moving up within the ranks. That, the People who are differentiating themselves right now are doing it with their hearts and minds, not with their technical expertise.
0: Can I can I mirror something that you had said earlier? Can I jump in real quick? Is you were parking cars? You know, from yeah. other people's perspective, people could say that that one is not a um, not a really yeah. sexy job. You know, you're driving water boats and stuff like that. I think that you looked for the higher purpose. I don't think that you necessarily had to have Disney. You believed in relationships from the time you were young as a twin and all of that. And you're bringing that to the table. So it seems like one of the action items for anybody who's listening in is if you are starting a company, make sure you're clear on the purpose. If you're in a company that seems like they just built it based on money, then try to find that purpose in that. And that there could be a level of likeness to the whole thing of saying, all right, let this be your playground. Like you've said consistently throughout your career, this was what was fun. I tried this. I played here. And and getting out of the drudgery and tapping into purpose could be that answer, I think is one of the big takeaways. I would say is takeaway number one. Takeaway number two, I think of what I heard in our conversation, obviously, is continue to have the big picture. I think that there's something about this big picture, the specialist generalist thing, as you were saying that, I'm like, well, I think I'm. You and I grew up in the similar environment. Like my consulting, all my skill sets were built at Disney. And when I was in the OD department, like we had organization development consultants, we had leadership consultants, we had productivity consultants, we had HR consultants, we had all of these different people. And it's like we all stayed in our lane, but we were expected to partner.
1: Right. And
0: I think that that's where that big picture could come in is if you're a leader that you can be a generalist of all of the leadership areas is that you're a a generalist, but you're a specialist within your line of business based on when you're, however you're connecting into the system. So it's like, own your lane. Don't step into somebody else's lane. Own it, be excellent, but then partner. It
1: exactly. seems to be
0: a second takeaway as it relates to the generalist leader is a another another takeaway. So number one, make work fun. You can make work fun when you find the purpose. The other ways you can improve your effectiveness is stay in your lane, hone your lane, develop your lane, and always look for the biggest perspective within your lane and then look at the bigger perspective within the organization. It's like, well, who else do I need to be connecting with? That could be another takeaway that um, somebody could have. Is there other takeaways that you would say for somebody listening in is saying, all right, These are two actionable things you could do right now based on this conversation is our third one that you could think of.
1: Well, let me just pick, let me hit one of the the examples you laid out. And I I do have a model in the book. that's called the circle of influence. I mentioned that briefly earlier, but I talk about it in the book in the sense of you do have the circle of influence that you lead. The bottom third are those people that report to you. So you've got to be present and available and accessible, empathetic. And influential with within that group. The middle bar is your peer group. Those individuals who are like you, maybe at the same level, likely at the same level, but not just within operations, in research and development, in industrial engineering, in consumer insights, you know, those are all people who have an influence on your specific business. And you need to kind of wake up every day thinking about how am I going to hit this lower third? How am I going to hit this middle third? And then, of course, there's the leaders that you work for and the, and the steering committees and the executive committees that are in the upper third. I think leaders sometimes forget that one of their biggest responsibilities and privileges is to advocate the great work that their own team does. So the more you can do that with your peer group and those above you, the more they're going to see the great talents that you have within yourself and within your organization. It's not just about showing up and delivering the base it's about showing up and delivering and influencing and driving really across all of those, all of those circles. Um, the oh, only the other balance one,
0: thing, can you right. mention like, yeah, the balance, could you bring in that one?
1: Yeah. You mean about specifically.
0: Uh, like you have your apps, like what if, what if somebody, so you said that the family, faith, friends, oh, what family, if, faith,
1: social and work? Yeah.
0: Oh, okay. So they weren't all F's family, faith, friends,
1: we can make them social,
0: family. We could, faith, <laughs> friends. See, that's and, another one.
1: I'm not good at acronyms. You know, I don't even have Rick spelled right. Relationship, influence, knowledge, and credibility. So I'll work on the ups for the family.
0: Faith, <laughs> okay. Fun, but it, so problem. what if what if somebody's got that? So it seems like one of the big takeaways is recognize what's in your balance wheel, if you will. But if what if something's out of balance, how does somebody get back in balance?
1: Well, first of all, hopefully they recognize it early enough to be able to uh, rebalance uh, before it gets too far down the path. But when I found myself out of balance, it took me a long time to figure this out, I needed to step back from the other three, not necessarily abandon them, but step back and really pour myself into what is wrong in this particular case. Whether it's a bad relationship from decades ago or something like that, if that is messing up my head in the other two or three circles... I better fix that so that the other ones don't become out of whack as well. So I would say, focus, focus. Don't think that it's going to fix itself. Otherwise it won't. Um, And and, and pay attention to it and understand with vulnerability what's out of whack. Seek help if you need to seek help. But the reality is, I don't, by the way, go like, oop, out of whack, got to go do that. Oop, out of whack, go do that. You know when it's really out of whack. You know, yeah, when, right. You know, when, you know, my faith so, journey is a good example of that, you know, I grew up in uh, Catholicism, took a long, 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 break, you know, went through a lot of changes and realized there's something missing here. There's something that um, is, is, out of, is, is out of whack here and I need to stop everything else and fix that so I can reach equilibrium you know, across the board and the other ones. But it's honest. being honest with yourself. It's recognizing the opportunity, being vulnerable and humble to be able to say, I can do better than this and I'm going to do better than this.
0: So we have our F model. So we have friends, faith, um, family, and I forgot the other one, the other F. Fun. Oh, funds. Oh, yeah, (laughs) funds. And the way that you solve it is you focus, you fix it, and you figure it out with help. Wow.
1: We got yeah. seven F's. Now, right now we
0: got an, ac- an alliteration there. You're
1: amazing.
0: <laughs> awesome. Okay. So, as a wrap up, um, is there any, if you were going to give advice to consultants, coaches, like and the people that were in your inner circle, you know, that are trying to help executives like you create the kind of changes that you are in charge of? You know, what advice would you give them that that would help them better connect with someone like you? What kind of messages would you want to hear that would make you say, "Oh, yeah, that's the partner for me"? If you didn't already know who they were.
1: The you know, I was thinking, as you were saying that there were a couple things popping in, 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 into my head. Um, the I think everybody needs to do an occasional reset, and it's not a reset necessarily of your entirety of your leadership capability or your leadership strengths but it is to basically step back and assess on your own honestly how am i doing in in key areas of of engagement how am i engaging authentically and and deeply with the people that i spend a third of my life with at work uh, secondly is to be honest with yourself and take the time that you need to say what can I improve in myself and in my organization, and really, you know, we did a paradigm shift during the next generation experience thing that I still use today, and it was an honest assessment of who are we today and what do we want to be tomorrow. I've used that personally, you know, uh, but we use it for, from a project perspective because we had become episodic, we had become complex, we had become mass anonymous, and we knew we needed to become diff- We needed to be different. We needed to be more immersive less complex, you know, simple and seamless. And do an inventory, a self-inventory, and ask the key partners that you work with for their honest feedback on yourselves. It's the hardest thing for people to do, to be honest, is to give honest feedback. Uh, and I think it's the biggest gap we have in leadership today is taking the time out to spend with investing in people on how they can improve themselves. But no one has ever reached perfection My mantra is like I can always be better in my four circles or in anything that I'm doing, but I can't do it on my my own, I have to rely on Marty, my wife, to give me thoughts and ideas and input and encouragement, or to tell me from a contrarian lens how to think about things differently. But I would embrace contrarian thinking, I would find your circle of influence and connect with them, not just when you need them, and that's really important. How many times have you gotten a phone call from someone you haven't heard from in three years? And it's always a, hey, how you doing? And you immediately know there's an ask for something on, on the back end. Yeah. Well, if I had always if I always pay attention to this because I don't want my first phone call to be to somebody with an ask. I want my first phone call and subsequent phone calls to be on this relationship thing so that when I do call for the ask, it's not just, oh, he only calls me when I when I need a favor. It's all about connections and relationships because relationships matter. You know, that's my big, big mantra here. And I think that an organization, especially one that's in the resort destination business, but really in any business, has the opportunity to reset, reestablish their why, and drive their purpose to the next level with a vision and a clear vision for everybody else to follow, Define find the destination and go and be nimble and agile along the way. Don't wait for perfection. You'll be passed by everybody.
0: So for you as a as a consultant and a speaker, the kind of situations that you want people to call you for is when they are looking at a transformational opportunity and they need to have somebody to help them stop, reset, consider who they are, where they want to become. And so for you, that's where people should be contacting you from that standpoint, if yes. you're... And particularly your passion right now is healthcare, but these large companies that may yes. have gotten to a certain point where it's like, okay, we got to think differently is, yes. is really where your sweet spot is. That's exactly you, right. Um, and do you mostly do consulting or do you do coaching as well with executives?
1: I'm doing a little bit of both right now. Um, I, when I think about the key is a focus for me, it's about leadership product, and I'm sorry, leadership, culture, and experience transformation. So leadership, of course, for me right now, it does in some of the clients I'm working with involve mentoring and providing insight into how they can grow and be a better leader. Um, culture is obviously what's in the DNA of an organization and where are the silos, where are the sniper, fi- where's the sniper fire coming from and what does it take to be able to move cultures? And then experience is really around the product side but you have to have leadership and culture in order to affect true transformation on the experience side. You cannot just jump over and think you're gonna transform your experience if your leadership team and your culture doesn't embrace that. And I have a pretty innate ability to assess where organizations are, certainly based on metrics, but also based on that art I was talking about earlier, which is the DNA of people and the DNA of cultures.
0: Yeah, you could probably size it up really fast. Um, anything that you would give advice to other consultants, like when you were an executive, and you would say, here's some do's and don'ts if you're trying to advise the C-suite. Um, is there any any advice from your experience as somebody who worked with a lot of consultants and a lot of coaches throughout your career?
1: Yeah, I would, you know, all of all consultants come to the consultant world with expertise and, you know, proven uh proven successes otherwise they wouldn't be doing what they're doing and be successful at doing what they're doing i find that the most successful consultants are the ones that come in with an open mind they have a strong sense of what it takes to move cultures and leaders and experiences to the next level but take the time up front and walk in the shoes of everybody walk in the shoes of the front line walk in the shoes of the managers walk in the shoes of the executives and really understand the product and understand the blocking and tackling that it takes in order to make change and also deliver the base experience at the time. I've worked with theoretical consultants who I personally can sniff out about five minutes. And I've worked with deep experienced consultants who I can tell are thoughtful, methodical, and absorbent of what's around them before they come in with preconceived notions and preconceived conclusions. I'd also say do your homework, go experience the product of a prospective client to make sure you understand from a consumer lens what it feels like. I'm, I'm not gonna name names right now, but I'm working with an organization where I, it's very clear, it's, not, it's, not, it's no organization that I've mentioned, <laughs> but it's very clear that there's an Ivy tower, ivory tower syndrome happening. You know, We sit in, a, in corporate headquarters and we vision these thoughts, but oftentimes they're not really connected to reality. The truth is there. The truth is always closer to the front line than it is further away or further up in the organization. Go find the truth first so you're grounded and you have the the relationships, influence, knowledge and credibility to make you successful in doing that. But be a student, I guess, and, and know that your your talents and your skills and your experiences will follow suit immediately. But be a student first and then an expert second.
0: And that brings us back full circle to when you and I first met. And I don't know if you remember this, but our first meeting was supposed to just be like a a regular one-on-one and you're like, "Mm -mm, we're going to walk the park. (laughs) And every meeting that we ever said since then, we never had a meeting in your office. We had, if we had a meeting in your office, it would be after we work the park, we walk the park and you made sure that I understood the product. You made sure that I understood the experience and then we, you made sure that we had that relationship first. Before we ever talked about the work. Yeah. And hence no, I, we're here all these years later. Yeah. And
1: that's why you get the credibility too, right? People see Hold you on, out there. So they how they about the sign? You, see you knowing it and they see you learning it. I think it's hugely important.
0: Could you say that again, just in case it didn't record?
1: Yeah. You're absolutely right. I think, you know, there's so much credibility that comes with being seen. People are watching readers all the time, whether it's in Publix or on Main Street USA. People watch what you do and how you do it. And I didn't go out and walk the park with you because I wanted people to see us. I went out and walked the park because I wanted to see them. And, you know, I wanted to show you and share with you kind of what's going on in these people's heads and what they have to deal with day in and day out. Because there's a lot of things you can do and read on the theory of leadership, but there's nothing like hands-on practical experience to be able to get the feels for what's really happening, you know, out and about.
0: Yeah, and, and I think that Like out of all the executives that I've worked with, like I definitely I always say that you're like in the top top and you're actually you're the first interview in my favorite executive series here because of that relationship. Like I feel like I am the consultant that I became the consultant that I became because of your influence Uh, and because of what you taught me just from as a client, what you asked me for, how you engage with me. I wouldn't have the business I have if it wasn't for that. And I'll have to tell you, Animal Kingdom is my favorite park. I <laughs> I have such fond memories, not just I have fond memories because that's where I became a mother and this yeah. is where I brought my babies and all of that. And it's so weird because we we're just talking about our kids are like all grown now. But the um, but that special time with that crazy park, with all of the crazy personalities right. that were there and how we wrangled them all together and And I think it's just so fascinating for me to see just as your thoughts evolve. So I definitely urge everybody who's listening in, get Jim's book. It's not not a bunch of like the same old, same old leadership philosophies that you've heard from a hundred other people. It's completely unique, completely different. Definitely follow him on LinkedIn and see what he's up to. If you're an organization and you don't want to have the same old, same old, but a fresh perspective on leadership. You definitely need to talk to Jim. And I know he's an engaging speaker because obviously I, could, I just want to listen to you all day long and I don't want to end this interview, but I know I have to. Um, so definitely, I definitely encourage anybody who's looking at that. As a wrap up, is there anything that you would want to share about leadership and your journey um, as a Disney leader or as a human through this world? And I just didn't ask you the right question.
1: You you asked me a lot of great questions. You know, Betsy, the only thing I would remind everyone is that, you know, our time here on this planet is finite. We will all meet again one day, I would imagine. I don't want to get philosophical on that aspect of, of life, but I believe that every moment for an interaction is an opportunity for engagement. And, you know, especially for the people that in this world right now, as crazy as it is, between politics and, you know, world disruption and pandemics and things of that nature, the only real thing we can rely on with one another is our connection and is our relationships. And if you're, especially if you're in a business in which you're building relationships with consumers, it's not rocket science. There's so much competition for your time, though, that if you're not careful, the most important part of your time use engaging and inspiring others can get eaten up. And I'd say stay focused on, we're in this for the long term, stay focused on building great relationships, stay true and authentic to yourself and to others. Realize you're only as smart as the number of minds that you have surrounded by you. And so more is better and um, and be vulnerable. Uh, You know, I'm a huge believer of humility and vulnerability. Um, And I believe the great leaders, you know, Jim Collins talks about it in a good degree as level five leadership top 3% are, are, have a strong sense of humility. And it's because they put others in the spotlight versus themselves. They look outside the window versus you know in the mirror. And I, I, I think that's been my, the tool. To, those are a couple of the critical key success factors for me. And I know they're the success factors for the great leaders that I worked for too. So don't forget, it's about hearts and minds here, not a paycheck. That's, that, that's my 10 cents.
0: That's awesome. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Betsy, thank you. And congratulations to you. I'm so proud of you for all you've done over the years. And you've been very helpful for me all these years, especially this last year. So uh, if you needed someone to give you good counsel on where you're headed, call Betsy. Betsy Jordan. Um, (laughs) But no, thanks for the time, Betsy. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you, Jim. Thank you for tuning in. If today's episode lit a fire on you, please rate and review enough already on Apple Podcasts or subscribe wherever you listen. And if you're looking for your next step, visit me on my website at betsyjordan.com and it's Betsy Jordan with a Y and you'll learn all about our end-to-end services that are custom designed to accelerate your success. Don't wait, start today.